Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Before we get into our baptisms in a little while, I want to set that up with the Word. So Matthew chapter 28, and you're looking at the title of this message, and you're thinking, that might need some explanation. She's mine. Sounds a little possessive, and perhaps you might read that negatively, so let me just explain that. You know that, yes, it could be taken negatively, it could also be taken positively, um, and you think about it in any healthy relationship, there's an, there's an amount of possessiveness, true? Like, for example, I married Karis. Karis is my wife. She's not your wife. She's my wife. You know, she's my girl. And when I say she's my girl, well, that means that there, it implies... A number of things. It implies that I've given my love to her. It implies that I've committed to caring for her and loving her and supporting her and encouraging her and being with her at her side. You know, all of that and so much more. So we know that in healthy relationships, you know, being possessive, there's a good side to that. We also know there's a negative side to it. And we've all seen the made-for-TV movie specials about the crazy boyfriend that goes berserk and that sort of thing. Or maybe you've had your own share of failed relationships over the years with somebody that was overly jealous, that sort of thing. So you've experienced the negative side of that possessiveness. But today when we say, she's mine, when it comes to Jesus and the way that he feels about you, she's mine, it implies all of the good that that could possibly mean. You take the love, you take the the devotion, the support, the encouragement, the sacrifice, the commitment, and so much more. Take all of it, you wrap it up, you pin it to a cross, and that's Jesus giving everything that he has for you. He's laying it all on the line for you. And I pray that today, on this Easter Sunday, you can hear his heart for you as he says, She's mine. Now, she's doesn't leave you guys out. Okay, fellas, just for a second, let's explain that also, just so you don't feel like you're out in the cold. Guys, let's think of it this way. When you look at a really nice truck, you say, she's a beauty. When you look at a a ship out on the ocean, nice, majestic, big ship, you know, and you look at that thing and you say, wow, she's amazing. Now, when you say she's amazing, she's a beauty about these fine things, okay, now I know, why do you do that? Now, I know some of you women are like, well, duh, because women are amazing, and that's why you say she's amazing. And sure, ladies, we'll give that to you, okay? But let's think about it a little more deeply than that. If you think about it, these things are collectives. Like each individual part that makes up that great truck or that ship is not that impressive. But when you put all those parts together, that's how you get she's a beauty, she's amazing. And when Jesus looks at us, when he says, she's mine, he's not just speaking to women, not just speaking to men. He's speaking to women and to men. He's speaking to people of all shapes and sizes. He's speaking to rich to poor. He's speaking to black to white to brown to Asian. He's, he's speaking to 
smart, not so smart. He's speaking to all of it. All of this comes together and makes she's mine. Jesus sees us together and he says, she's amazing. So this morning, that's what we want to talk about. And my prayer is that by the time we're done, that you'll say, Jesus, if you said she's mine, then I want to respond by saying, I'm yours. That's my prayer. That's where we're going today. Sound fair? So what I want to do is just take a look. I want to tell a story, if you will, about Jesus' love for us and how he's expressed that. And it starts with last Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. Now, you know in the Bible, they didn't call it Palm Sunday. That's the name that we give to it. Jesus didn't say, hey, boys, tomorrow is Palm Sunday, so make sure you get your palms. See, like That didn't go down that way. You and I look back on that event, we call it Palm Sunday, which launches Passion Week. Again, something that we call it, they didn't call it Passion Week. And Passion Week is the last week of Jesus' life on earth, and we looked at that last Sunday, Luke chapter 19, where the story of Jesus is riding on a baby donkey through the streets of Jerusalem while the crowds, they wave palm branches and they laid down their cloaks on the ground and they celebrated his coming. Now, and we look at this and we think, that's kind of like a parade. And Jesus is the main attraction. And that's true. It is a parade of sorts. However, it's much more than that. It's actually a wedding procession, which I know sounds weird to us because we don't think of weddings in this way, but in order to see it as a wedding procession, we need to understand it the way that they did weddings. You understand that we do weddings differently than they did. Makes sense, doesn't it? Two totally different cultures living in two totally different time periods, so they do them differently. But let's just talk about that for a second. So we do weddings like this. We do weddings traditionally in a church although less and less these days, but let's say traditionally in a church, and the groom is at the front of the church, and the bride, she walks down the aisle towards the groom. He waits for her to come to him, right? And in our weddings, the bride is the center of attention. We always say the wedding is the bride's day, that sort of thing. But that's not how they did it in the first century. For starters, they didn't do weddings in churches because, well, churches hadn't been invented yet, literally. They did weddings outside. And you say, well, what would, have, what would they have done if it rained? Well, it's no big deal. Their weddings lasted at least seven days. You're bound to get one sunny day in there, at least seven days. Can you imagine, hey, boss, uh, I need to go to my Uncle Harold's wedding. Oh, yeah, when are you coming back? Next month. It's a, like a month long. Literally, seven days is the minimum. So they have seven days, and she would wait for the groom. The groom did not wait at the front. She waited for him. So the girls, the bride and her bridesmaids would wait in this spot together, looking forward to the coming of the the groom. And can you imagine, ladies, how much fun that'd be? You got your girlfriends, you're all hanging out, you're just waiting for the big moment when the groom arrives. And and when the groom arrived, there would be this processional. And depending on how wealthy or how powerful the groom was, the processional would look accordingly. So if he's just a peasant dude, it's just him and a couple of his buddies walking down the street, banging on trash lids. Woo, Fred's getting married. You know, that sort of thing. But if it's a king, if it's a king, it's going to look something like what we read in Song of Songs chapter 3. 
which here's a shameless plug. I can't wait to teach on the Song of Songs this summer, planning on it, preparing for it, and it's such a good book. So that's starting in June. But Song of Songs chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, what we read is coming from the perspective of the bride and her bridesmaids as they see the groom approaching, and they say this, who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke? Look, girls. I put the word girls in there because the girls are talking to each other. Look, girls. It's Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all of them experienced in battle. King Solomon made for himself a carriage. Its posts are from Lebanon. Its posts he made from silver. Its base of gold, its seat was upholstered in purple, the, the, the most expensive fabric that they could buy back then. On the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. You get the picture? Solomon is riding in style because he's the king. He's got the sedan. You know, the sedan's that thing with the, the bed and four guys would carry it on their shoulders. And he's lounging back there all suave in his sedan with the ivory posts and the gold and the purple cloth. And he's surrounded by 60 warriors. These are the, the best fighters that Israel had. This is your Green Berets. These are your Navy SEALs. These guys are jacked, and they're all around Solomon, and they're making such a big deal that the ladies can actually see the dust kicked up down the street, I mean, miles away. Here he comes. Oh, he's coming. He's coming for you. You get the picture? If you've ever seen the movie Aladdin, seen Aladdin? Prince Ali, 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 Ababa. Genuflect, show some respect down on one knee. You know that one, right? You're going to love this guy. Is that not ringing any bells? Come on, tell me you didn't see that. You saw that movie. You know you did. I loved it, actually. So that's a, a wedding procession. That's him. That's Solomon. He's coming down. And this is the way this would work. The, the bride waits for the groom as he comes down the street. Okay, so this is what we see here. In our modern weddings, the bride is the focal point of the wedding. In these ancient weddings, the groom was the focal point. But who was the focal point for the groom? The bride. The bride, absolutely. He's coming for his girl, and he's riding in style, and he's dressed to impress. And this is the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. It's Jesus' wedding procession, which launched his wedding week. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but I would encourage you for fun. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can look up, you can actually find some of the chapters that pertain to that final week of Christ's life, and you'll discover numerous references in that last week to weddings, wedding processionals, wedding language. One of the clearest references takes place at the Last Supper, John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus is there at the table with his disciples, and Jesus says to them, I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. These are the exact words that a young man would say to his beloved as he proposed marriage to her. The way that they would do it is you have a 
You have the fathers, they would have gotten together first, and they would make all the arrangements between, you know, about what's going to happen to their kids. And then the young man is going to speak to the father of the, of the bride, and they're going to work out the dowry price. And they're going to dot, cross all the T's and dot all the I's and so forth. And after all that's done, the young man is going to share a glass of wine with the young lady. And as they do, he's going to say these words to her. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. And then he would leave that scene and he would go back to his family farm and he would begin to build a house for her, more than likely a, an extra room on the back of his you know, parents' house somewhere where he and his soon-to-be wife would take up residence and begin to build their life together. That's how they would do that. And then when that room was ready, then the father of the groom would give permission for the groom to go and get his bride. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember Jesus said this? Jesus says that the Son of Man does not know the day or the hour that he's going to return, but only the who? Only the Father. It's wedding language. Jesus goes and prepares the room, and only the Father, when the Father gives the cue, that's when Jesus comes and gets his girl. So it's all wedding language. Now this brings us to the cross. Jesus suffers six hours of agony on the cross, as he paid for our sins. It was there that he satisfied the wrath of God that was coming towards you and me because of our sin. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands are challenged to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And it says this specifically. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Jesus gave himself up for his girl. Jesus died on the cross for his girl so that she would be made holy. In other words, Jesus gave up his life to make us better. And husbands, husbands, you and I are called to that standard. What a high standard we're called to. That's a whole separate sermon. It scares me, but Jesus lays down his life for us. Now, after Jesus is hanging on the cross for six hours, six hours, he said these final words. And do you remember the final words that Jesus said? The last three words he said before he breathed his final breath. It is finished. finished. Let's say that again. It is finished. What is it? It's, it's finished. Now, here's what I learned recently that is super duper cool. These words translated into English as it is finished in the Greek. John is writing in a Greek language, and the Greek word is tetelestai. And the word tetelestai means it is finished, means it is completed. Um, it's a picture of, well, of like a telescope. That's probably the best way to explain it is. Think about a pirate's telescope, and you even hear how the words are similar. Telescope, tetelestai. Same, same words, right? So in the telescope, as the telescope is closed, you, you, you see it a little bit, but then as the telescope's expanded out, right, and then it, when it reaches its full length, that's where the item that you're looking at comes into the clearest view and comes closest. And it's as though, see, tetelestai, so it is finished, so when Jesus hung on the cross, it literally, the telescope was fully extended, and now God's plan is made perfectly clear. 
See, after all of these years, it's like from before time began. Literally, God's been working this plan before he created the world. Do you understand? We, we can't. I can't even fathom, you know, before time began. But before time began, God was working this plan. And then as Jesus hung on the cross, when he cried those words, it is finished, right? That's when that plan of God that had been at work from creation to the fall to Abraham to Moses to David, on and on and on and on through, right up to the time of Christ. That's when that whole plan finally came completely into view. To Tetelestai, that's the word. So it's a pretty cool word, just that by itself, meaning it's finished, it's completed, except for this. It's probably not the word Jesus said from the cross. Because you see, they, Jesus wouldn't have spoken Greek Greek was a language that they, that they did their business in. Greek was a language that they wrote in. That's why John wrote in Greek. But the language that they would use every day when they're hanging out at the house and talking with their friends and that sort of thing, their everyday language was Aramaic. And so that would be the language that Jesus would naturally have spoken. As he hangs on the cross, he says the words, it is finished. He didn't say to Telestai, he would have said the Aramaic word, Kala. Now, Kala, John's not doing anything wrong. He takes Kala and he's writing to Telestai. Perfectly appropriate to do that. But Kala is such a rich word because it means finished and it means completed, but it also has another meaning. And we do this all the time in English. Maybe one of the best ways to understand it is to think about like our word run. You know, we do this, we, we, we butcher words all the time in our language, don't we? You agree English is a hard language? It is. I'm still learning it, you know, frankly. Um, just, got the, just got a B in that class. So, English. Take the word run, for example. You and I instinctively know that saying that my refrigerator runs and me going for a run are two different things. And we know that that's entirely different than someone who runs for president and saying, my nose runs. Now, you, now we, know, we know the difference because you, you and I live it. This is our every day. And so you automatically get the word in its proper context, see? Now, just if you want to really have fun, take the word run and hyphenate it. Run off, run on, run over, run out. Like it's got like 25 different meanings, Okay. So I think we can leave a little room for Aramaic to have a word, kala, that means finished, completed, and it means something else. It means bride. Bride. So as Jesus stands on the cross, as he stands nailed to the cross, Jesus is saying, kala, it's finished, my bride. In other words, he's saying, She's mine. She's mine. I've done all the work. It's been completed. The plan has been completed. She's mine. I've paid the price. Nothing stands between us. She's mine. He's claiming his bride. He's claiming his bride. Sin doesn't stand in the way. Shame doesn't stand in the way. Fear doesn't stand in the way. Nothing stands in the way. She's 
mine bride as he does that from the cross. But wait a second. Something does stand in the way. Because in order for Jesus to pay the price for our sins, to make us right with God, well, he died. And it's awfully hard for us to have a relationship with a dead guy. So what are we to make of that? What do we do with this? That brings us to Matthew chapter 28. Brings us to Easter, to our big day. Here it says this, After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Can I just pause right there for a second? Any of you feel like you're the other Mary? What do you suppose that's like? You're the other Mary. For all of history, the other Mary. But I don't know, I think that there's a message in there for some of us. Because maybe you feel like that's you. You've lived your life as the other Mary. But I want you to be encouraged this morning. Because the other Mary witnessed the resurrection. I want you to be encouraged this morning. You might be the other Mary to your friends, but you are the Mary to the God of the universe. He loves you and he sees you. There was a violent earthquake, verse 2, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. That must have been so cool. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. You see these words? He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Would you repeat that little phrase with me again? It's so good. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. So Jesus said that he would rise again? Yes, he did. Why didn't they understand it? Well, because it had never been done before. It was a foreign concept to them. Nobody had ever risen from the dead like that. They would be like you. Let's imagine that you lived 200 years ago and some, some, one of your buddies talks about seeing an airplane. You have no context for an airplane. You wouldn't have a clue what they were referring to. You would even think that they were probably crazy. You know, oh, it's just that Bob. He's talking about another thing. He saw wings. But see, you know what it is. And the same is true with resurrection. I think we can give them a little bit of a break. They had never seen it before. Now, you and I know exactly what happened, don't we? Why? Because we live on this side of history. We look back. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. And you say, why would Jesus defeat death like that? Because that's what love does. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, tells us that love is as strong as as death. I like that verse. Psalms 100 verse 5 says the Lord is good and his love endures. How long? Forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8. Love 
never fails. How often does love fail? How often does love fail? Never. It never fails. That's the right answer. See? Not even in death. So Jesus loved you to the cross. Jesus loved you from the cross. And Jesus loved you through the cross to the other side. And he conquered death because love is stronger than death. Because love endures forever. Because love never fails. So Jesus saw it all the way through. And he rose again. Now you might ask, well, what does this mean for my life right now? I got bills to pay, kids that are driving me crazy, stuff happening, work, job, boss, craziness going on. Like, how does this apply to my life? What does the resurrection, what meaningful impact can the resurrection of Christ have on my daily life? I think of three things, and these are just a, a, for starters. Number one, it means that it pulls us towards something better. It means that, that what's going on right now, like this is not the end of the story. There's, the end is still coming, and the end is glorious. It pulls me towards something better. I see it at every funeral that I do. I've done hundreds of funerals over the years. You know, I've never seen someone stand at the edge of a grave saying, well, that's it. I guess they're fertilizer. Why? Because there's something deep inside of our souls that yearns and longs for something else. That, that this, this grave cannot get the last, this cannot be it. There has to be more than, than this right here. See? There's something inside of us. Why? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus makes that possible. If Jesus had never risen from the dead, then there's really no hope that there would be anything beyond that grave. But because Jesus rose from the dead, I know the grave does not get the last word. Jesus does. And so what if that's my hope for the future? How can that impact my everyday living? What if I were to draw that hope from, from the future and bring it into my present day and live today with that kind of hope? What kind of change would that make in your life? Second thing is this, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing, not even death. Not even death can do it. You know how you think like that thing that you're ashamed of, you know, your worst day that you wish had never happened, that one, that doesn't stand in the way. And I know some of you might have even joked on your way in like, oh, I bet if I walk into that church, the building will collapse on me. I'm so bad. That doesn't stand in the way. Nothing stands in the way between you and God's love for you. Literally nothing. And literally the only one really standing between you and God's love for you is you. Because he's done everything necessary. He's just waiting for you to respond. Jesus cries from the cross, she's mine. And he's waiting for you to say, I'm yours. I'm yours. And then the third thing is this. The things that you thought were scars, now they become a beautiful part of your story. And the crazy love that Jesus has for you 
One of the things that Jesus did after he rose again was he showed his scars to his disciples. He told them, look at these. And he even invited doubting Thomas to put his finger into his side. You say, why does Jesus do that? Does he do that to shame them? Like, hey, look what you guys did to me. No, that's not his heart at all. No, Jesus wanted to restore them. He wanted to heal them. Remember the last time they saw his scars, there were nails in them. They were a symbol of death. Now Jesus wanted them to see his scars through the lens of resurrection, not through the lens of death. When seen through the lens of resurrection, that's a failure. That's shameful. Look what I did to Jesus. When seen through the lens of resurrection, that's healing. That's empowering. And you can look at your own scars the same way, either through the lens of death or through the lens of resurrection. When you look at through the lens of death, I have many things that I'm ashamed of and embarrassed of, many things that I really wish had never happened, days that I really wish I had not gone through, that I went through all of my own making, by the way. I'm not a victim. But when I see them through the lens of resurrection, those sins, those mistakes, those worst days, those things that I'm ashamed of, they now become reminders of healing and restoration that can only come about because Jesus rose from the dead. They're, they're, they're like symbols almost of a, of a man that once was but that is no more because Jesus Christ has changed him from the inside out. You see? Jesus Jesus has redefined our scars. This is why I can openly talk about my past failures, because they're not me anymore. That's an old guy. That old guy's dead. He's gone. But I can learn a lot from him. I learn a lot about what not to do. <laughs> Any of you there? I can, I can, I've got a long list of things of what not to do. <laughs> I learned from personal experience. But here's the deal those scars now become just part of the glory story. They're not even my story, if you think about it. They're Jesus' story. Because he healed me. He did the work. He restored. He's made all things new. I just want to close with this one Bible verse. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says this. It says that many multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. I know that's a heavy verse. There's hope in it, though. Jesus' resurrection is a breakthrough that because he rose again, you and I will rise again. And the truth is this, every one of us will rise again. Daniel 12 attests to that, that the day will come when those who sleep in the dust of the earth Will rise again. So there, there will be a look. Look at the, look at every cemetery. That cemetery is going to be greatly disturbed someday. See. And on that day, he says, you and I will experience one of two things. Either I will experience eternal life, eternal life, where Jesus is there and he's, she's mine. Yes, finally. I've been waiting for this moment. It's going to be a moment of joy, a moment of celebration, a moment of completion. Or 
Others, it says, will rise again to everlasting shame and contempt. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to say you have a choice. You have a choice. Which will be yours? Jesus has done everything he can so that nothing stands in the way between you and him. Nothing. He's literally waiting for you to make the choice to receive his work on your behalf. Like I said, I say it simply. Jesus says she's mine. He's waiting for you to say, I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. I want to begin to see my life through the lens of resurrection, not the lens of death. And I want to see Jesus. I want to see what he can do changing this and that, right? Turning all of these old things into something new, into something useful, into something beautiful. He makes beautiful things out of dust, a song says. I love that word. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.